Hey, Rare Bird listeners. Thanks for uh, tuning in. My name is Emil DeAndres. I am represented by Rare Bird PR. And the book I've written that they represent is called Hard to Grip. It is a memoir of youth baseball and chronic illness. I'll just give a brief background of the book before I get into my discussion on this podcast. The book kind of has two dueling narratives. One of the narratives is about a kid who kind of grew up playing baseball and loved the game and uh, experienced it at a decently high competitive level, uh, played D1 baseball in college, had a professional contract, um, and was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. So the narrative there is a, a guy who loves baseball, who has to let go of it before he's ready, kind of resents the game, and then finds a way to love it afterwards. And the other narrative is is a young man who is in the physical prime of his life who um, is kind of a testosterone-based uh, individual who suddenly has a uh, an emasculating sort of disease of sorts called rheumatoid arthritis. And so he has to sort of let go of the vision he had of himself as a man and sort of move on from there. So those are the two narratives of the book. Um, I know most podcasts on, on Rare Bird are usually literary, uh, rooted in literary talks, but I'm sitting here right now next to my childhood best friend named Charlie Cutler, and he's also a, um, a predominant character in my memoir, Hard to Grip. Uh, he was also my catcher growing up, and he uh, he experienced seven or eight years in, in minor league baseball. And so that's 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 definitely a, a big section of the book. And so I'm I'm sitting next to him, and I think this podcast is probably going to be more more baseball themed than it is uh, literary themed. And so. I'm going to introduce my friend Charlie here right now. Hi, guys. Happy to be a part of the show. Charlie's been one of my best friends for 20 years now. We grew up playing together in San Francisco. Uh, he is a catcher, me as a pitcher. Um, and, you know, when you grow up playing the game, you kind of – it's just something that's assumed and it's something that is part of your life and you don't really think about it much. You don't get very philosophical about it, especially at a young age. And, you know um, – suddenly careers sort of blossom and you still never really have these talks. So some of these questions, some of these, these elements of our discussion might be had for the first time between me and Charlie. And I just, I don't think Charlie, I've ever asked you what made you fall in love with baseball. Like I, I get into it in my book and I'll, and I'll explain my experience with falling in love with the game of baseball for the first time. Um, but I've never asked you, I've known you for 20 years. I've never asked you what, what, what if it was a moment or if it was a certain season or a time or a, a specific baseball player, like how did you fall in love with the game of baseball? Cause you spent your whole life, your whole life playing it and you made your money playing it for the last, you know, seven years. I'm wondering what was the beginning of that? Man, you're going to bring me to tears before we even start, but baseball is, is a super powerful game. Uh, it's a game of a lot of chance and a lot of luck. And uh, to me, it's like the game of the gods in a sense, because it's the deepest game. Now I didn't know any of this when I first fell in love with baseball, at least uh, not consciously, maybe subconsciously, but um, baseball is just an incredibly challenging game. And like you, you know, I'm drawn to that challenge and that's what keeps us coming back. You know, the fact that you could hit a line drive and do everything right. And it could just be right at somebody. So I think it's just the layers to the game. You know, it's just such a deep game that you can never master it. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's there's no way that you can ever uh, 
you can never be like the the king of the castle. It'll always humble but you. But to actually point. to actually answer your question, there is no specific moment. Baseball just kind of grows on you, and next thing you know, baseball has pretty much stolen your soul, and it just grows within inside you until it's just such a huge part of your of your life. Excuse me. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah, I remember. Um, I mean, I fell in love with the game myself. Uh, probably before my memory could even function. I, in my book, I sort of articulated as these sort of vague recollections. So probably like four or five years old, um, being in a, in a park that I can't even identify right now, but being in a park with my dad, him throwing me wiffle balls and me swinging these big kind of like inflated red wiffle ball bats that used to have back then for kids. And uh, just hearing like the like the hollow bonk of a wiffle ball off the bat and it just watching mm-hmm. the ball kind of like sail. And like, I just, I mean, that is one of my first baseball memories. And then we, you know, we grew up uh, in the late eighties in San Francisco and that was a really good time for baseball. And so we had, we had the really good teams with the A's and the giants and they both faced off in the world series, uh, you know, in 1989. So if the, I guess, I guess my hero back then was Mark McGuire, even though I was a left-handed hitter, Mark McGuire, for some reason was my favorite hitter. Did you have like a, did you have a hero or was it just the game itself that you fell in love with? So I'll confess that I've always been a huge Barry Bonds fan ever since he joined the giants in 1993. Um, To call him my hero, I would maybe not go, wouldn't go that far, but I would call him my favorite player growing up. Certainly. But you know what, Emil, you just reminded me of something because I know that same bonk of the bat sound from a wiffle ball. And that brings me oh, back man. to being at Clear Lake, at Clear Lake, uh, picking up rocks yeah. and hitting them and basically just seeing how far you could hit a rock out into the lake and literally just playing almost like imagination games with yourself. I was playing like a whole game in my head, basically, and calling the game at the same time as like a five-year-old hitting rocks into the lake. So. Right. You took me back to a distant place right there. Um, yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, that's where – I think that's where people's people's fascination and love for the game begins. So, like, another thing that I was interested in talking to you about, and we've we've had these discussions before, and so so Charlie and I enjoyed the opportunity to play Division One baseball in, in different parts of the world, really. Uh, Charlie played baseball at Cal Berkeley. Um, and I played baseball at University of Hawaii Hilo. So it was always like our ultimate goal in high school to get to a Division One college. And we were both lucky enough to achieve that goal. And we worked really hard. And uh, a lot of the times it was just he and I playing catch. In San- and San Francisco in the fall is really a brutal place uh, to be playing sports. It's, re- uh, it's really cold and misty and unforgiving and really – Rarely does the sun burn off, especially in the district we live in. And um, so we would play after school and play catch and, and play in, 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 the, in the batting cages. And, uh, and it, I mean, we kind of like we had to deal with the elements and everything like that. And so we fought and got our scholarships to, to college. And then we kind of went our separate ways and we started to, you know, experience our own unique blend of people. And we, you know, when you play baseball for a long time, this is an old saying, but when you we've been in the game for a long time, you've seen everything. And so I'm curious, um, Charlie, if, if I were to, te- if I were to pose upon you, like the craziest story 
you remember. And this can be playing, this can be a person, but the craziest story in general in college. And then I, I kind of actually want to just ask you in, in the minor leagues too, because that's its own different beast. Um, so, but let's start about with college. Like, do you have a crazy story that you remember that you can sort of oh kind God. of vibe on for a minute? You know what? The, the stories are so numerous and so extreme that they blend together. But ra- mm-hmm. rather than a crazy story, I'd rather tell you about all the crazy guys I played with because baseball allows for a uh, type of personality that, frankly, just couldn't function in normal society. Well, I mean, these guys, some of these guys are so are so out there with their behavior. I mean, you're in a room with just top dog alpha males, top to bottom, you know, and the alpha right. males, like, of the alpha males. So it's right. a clubhouse culture that is so contradictory to what exists in society. It's, like, almost not reality. Um, totally. So as far as, like, Berkeley, I mean, gosh. <laughs> oh, man. I'm drawing a blank and you'll help me. All right. Well, geez. Well, there's, there's ones that, that could go and there's ones that could be probably saved, uh, before, but like, I will just say the difference between Charlie, Charlie and my experiences in college are Charlie went to a pretty legitimate division one college. They, they had good baseball players. They had baseball players that ended up in the, in the major leagues. Um, on, on a regular basis. Like I remember we actually played my university played Cal um, at one point and they had like four or five guys that would go on to play in the major leagues. Um, so, I mean, and they were in the, they were in the regionals for the college world series and stuff like that. Whereas my experience in college was a lot different. We played perennially excellent baseball teams, but we're always losing to them. And so one of the issues with being on a team like I was on was the fact that we didn't really have that strong of numbers. And our coach, our coach felt like it was, it was, uh, it jeopardized our career if he cut anyone at tryouts. And one thing that needs to be known is that usually at a typical college, a, a tryout for the university baseball team is just a formality. Nobody ever actually makes the team during a tryout. They already have their team figured out. They know who they gave their scholarship money to, um, and it's almost impossible to catch the coach's attention in a tryout if you aren't already on their radar. And so, but at the school I went to in university of Hawaii, Hilo, um, many of the people who tried out were not cut. And some of the people that were kept on the team were, I mean, they were hardly even baseball players. So I should say like, there's one person in particular that I remember. This was my tryout. This was the tryout, maybe my junior year of college. And so there were all the scholarship guys. It was our first tryout, you know, our first practice of the year. And there were all of a sudden, like everybody's wearing, you know, a jersey, a practice jersey, uh, baseball pants, stirrups, cleats, a baseball hat, a glove. They have the fundamental items necessary to, to participate in the game of baseball. And, you know, we're all playing catch, and there's like 100 people out there. And I suddenly notice a few people down. There's a guy wearing um, a bucket hat and a uh, a polo shirt, some cargo shorts, and sandals. And um, you know, people are starting to like gradually take notice of this guy. Um, and he's playing catch, and you know, he's like catching the ball and throwing it. And um, but people are just wondering, like, 
you know, have you played baseball before to show up, look, to show up dressed as you are, you look like you're about to go on a safari. And so naturally the coach calls in for a big meeting at some point and, um, and he's and he he kind of addresses some of the things that he, a coach has to address, some of the preliminary stuff. And uh, he's like, "Well, I just have to ask. This is a, you know a formality. Is there anybody here with any sort of special condition?" And he kind of scans he scans this huge crowd of people, and the only person raising his hand is this guy in a bucket hat, you know, with with his cargo shorts and sandals, wearing sandals. He raised his hand, and the coach was a really nice guy, the guy that I played for, and he said, "Well, oh." Yes. And what's, what's the, what's the issue? He's like, I have a heart condition and can drop dead at any moment. And, uh, the coach said, said, uh, well, okay. Like, and he didn't know how to go on from there. And, uh, he asked, what's your position? And he's like, I'm a pitcher. And so this, this, the level of derangement sort of like intensified, um, because <laughs> he's a knuckleballer, which is one of the weirdest positions uh, you can play in baseball. So one of the weirdest men ever to enter a baseball field was suddenly one of the weirdest positions ever to, you know, play baseball. And uh, he flew his bullpen and uh, eventually he was actually cut, but there were people that were actually waiting, you know, waiting around that list that, you know, the, the, the proverbial list at the end of a tryout uh, where people go up and look and see if their, their name is there a lot of the, a lot of the guys on the team were actually going up to that list and expecting to see his name uh, left there. So that was, that's a main difference between, uh, you know, a, a team like mine and like a normal team, like the, the team Charlie played on the team Charlie played on that guy wouldn't have made it, you know, past warmups, but you know, that's how it goes. Charlie, yeah. you think of anything? Yeah. Um, man, that story was so damn good, dude. Well, I could tell you about the guy that had the yips. That, that that might be a way to go here. Um, okay. So All right. I, I don't know if any of the listeners are, are familiar with that phenomena that in the baseball world, we call it the yips. It's uh, geez, it's hard to even put your finger on what to describe it as, but it's a throwing disorder of sorts. And this was something that I would not talk about during my active career due to superstition. But uh, now that I'm retired, you know, I feel completely comfortable doing it. So it's almost like a brain condition where um, someone that, you know, has pinpoint accuracy, say a pitcher, you know, is used to hitting corners of the plate that's 18 inches wide. All of a sudden they can't get within 10 feet of that. And it's a real phenomenon that I don't think science has yet to discover, but as a catcher in pro baseball, I was, unfortunately I, I had to witness this a few times myself and it was, it was a traumatic experience, even from an outsider's perspective. Um, so let me paint a picture for you. We're talking about spring training here with about 300 guys, half of which are pitchers, 150 pitchers. So there's about 70 bullpens every day. Okay. And that's when the pitcher throws his practice pitches off the mound. Um, and then there's a group of about two or three infected pitchers at the end of the group. Uh, and those are the guys with the yips. And uh, they're let out kind of, you know, after the main group, you know, maybe during lunch, maybe during like downtime where no one's going to really see them and no one's going to, you know, see what's going on and possibly get the infection. It's contagious, that sort of thing. You don't want guys thinking. So, you know, lunchtime would start. It'd be a normal day in spring training. All the normal guys would head in and, and go get lunch. And then, you know, the group of lepers would be let out of the 
the lunchroom, locker room, you know, usually escorted by a coach, mostly there to massage their ego. And uh, there'd always be two or three of us catchers that were recruited to miss our lunch and, and see if we could catch any of their pitches. So, I mean, essentially, there, there's no way to describe this scientifically. Um, but these guys were often, you know, not within 20 feet of the catcher. And they're trying their best, and it's a terrible sight. And it's just painful to watch. And I can remember one guy in particular, um, he walked through a cemetery in Binghamton, New York, and talked to his girlfriend for about 40 minutes. And the guy never threw a strike again. And it was, it was during that time that the yips got a hold of him. And uh, literally, this guy was an ex-first-round pick, and he, he basically never threw a strike again, and that was the end of his career. I mean, that's just cra- – it's crazy because – all right, here's two guys who uh, enjoyed success in their careers. This is me and Charlie. Uh, well, moderate success. I actually had an ERA of like five or six, so I'm actually not going to include myself in the category. That's good. That's good for Hilo standards, though. It is. And then, but, but then uh, I had a pro career and got rheumatoid arthritis, so I'm not even going to talk about – I'm not going to con- like consider myself a successful uh, baseball player, but it is – it's it's fascinating to be to have gotten through a career um and to be fascinating fascinated talking about the yips like i, I mean no I actually like, not not to interrupt but it's actually liberating to talk about it now because is. i never was willing to do so you know completely yeah. during my playing career <laughs> And it was one of those things where frankly if, if if there was a guy on your team that had the yips like you didn't even acknowledge that he had the yips it was the white right. elephant well, that, in the room exactly exactly and that's because there's a there's like a self-concern there for your own your own well-being like i remember there's that on, but on there's Chilo. something even worse than that i don't i don't mean to interrupt there's something even worse than that which is the fear of the infection which is you keep exactly. you keep your distance from this guy because you don't want whatever he has to get passed on to you which is insane, which is insane to think about. We're, I, I want to talk about that in a second. But, like, I remember being on UH Hilo, and there were two guys, and they were both my friends, and they were both left-handed pitchers like me, um, whose careers more or less ended due to the yips, and they, they ended in different ways. Uh, How happy were guy, you? I mean, I was, I mean... <laughs> Well, I mean, it like it made there were two left. There were two less left-handed pitchers I was competing with. That's, uh, I mean, I wasn't wishing anything that terrible. I would never do that. But I remember watching them warm up both, and it got to a point where, when their warm-up partners dreaded warm-ups, and it was like because they'd start out. And they'd be 30 feet apart for the first warm-up throw, and the ball would sail over their partner's head and hit the backstop. And then the partner would have to go get it, throw it back. The next, the next pitch would be in the dirt, like 10 feet in front of them, and roll past them. So partners started to dread throwing with, with, with these, these, these guys that were with the yips. So suddenly, like within a couple months of the season, these two poor left-handed pitchers had to throw with each other because no one else wanted to throw with them. And that was uh, insane because now both of them had the yips and they were throwing with each other. And it was just like, it, it just commonsensically, you could watch it and not make, you, you could not even understand it. There were two people throwing 50 feet from each other, launching it over each other's heads and having to chase it. And then like throwing ground balls to each other and having to chase mm-hmm. those. It was, 
absolutely crazy. Mm-hmm. But like what fascinates me the most about the yips, I don't even know if I'm as fascinated with what causes it. Like the brain sort of the little like, like spark in the brain that causes you to not really understand your release point anymore. Cause scientifically I think that's what it is. Just suddenly that last snap with your finger, your, your middle finger would, it's like the last finger on the ball you just can't have that smooth let go of it. Like so, like something right at that release point, you think something different and it causes you to just, you know, lose control of the ball. I'm not as like obsessed with that as I am the other people around that are witnessing it and, and their own superstitions. Cause like mm-hmm. that really is just as strong as the yips themselves is the people who are watching and trying to navigate mm-hmm. through their own understanding of it and how they approach it themselves. Because personally I was always a superstitious guy. Like, I had a really, like, me and Charlie's, well, my sophomore year at Lowell, when he was my catcher, like, I had a really good season that year, and I never changed my socks once that year. And it got to the point where, by championship, they were just shells. They were like the exoskeletons of a snake. They were, like, firm <laughs> and, like, molded my feet from all the sweat and, like, hardening over a season. Like, they weren't socks anymore. And that was all because I refused to wash them because I had succeeded in those socks. I remember my sophomore year, I chose the number 13 to wear because in a weird way, I'd always heard 13 was an unlucky number and I wanted to prove that superstition wrong. So it was like my own weird meta counter superstition. So I took 13 to prove the unluckiness of it wrong. I had a good season and I wore 13 for the rest of my baseball career. So I was definitely a very superstitious person. So an extension of superstition is really respecting the baseball gods and, and believing that they existed. And I always had a fear of the baseball gods. And I thought if I made fun of someone who had the yips, or if I laughed at someone who had the yips, or if I even obsessed over someone who had the yips, I would get the yips. And so (laughs) I (laughs) I wasn't necessarily averse to being around someone with the yips. I actually, on the contrary, I think I liked to be around them and tried to like nurture them. I wanted to like, mm-hmm. I wanted to like be there for them because I thought that was like in a weird way, like making me reflecting fond upon me in front of the baseball God. So I was always really nice to those people, but you know, what's interesting, Charlie, is that one of the two guys who ended up having the yips laughed at the first guy who had the yips. And so that made me believe even more that like Carl was in play with the yips. Like he, I remember we were sitting, we would be sitting together on the bench and, and, and we'd be watching this, this one poor kid struggle. And, um, and, and my friend would be laughing and I'd be like, Whoa, like I'm so uncomfortable laughing about that right now. And he would laugh. And then later that season, man, that guy had the yips, which is crazy. And so like, I'm actually interested Charlie in hearing, I want to hear about the, um, the superstition and the, the fright, the fright that sort of spreads throughout a clubhouse of a bunch of grown ass men about something like the yips, which is completely, you know, almost made up. Like I want to hear about how people yeah, deal with that. It, it's, it's fear. Um, let me be clear that a baseball clubhouse is a ruthless place. Um, you're right. talking about, you know, at the professional level, you're talking about grown men with kids and wives and expenses and it's not mess around mode. Um, right. Guys are going to get theirs at others' expenses if necessary. Um, sure. And now onto the baseball gods. 
the baseball gods are blind. The baseball gods, it's not like normal karma where it's like you do a good deed, you get you know rewarded in another way. You get what sure. you get, and that is all there is to it. Because I've seen some wow. of the most evil dudes ever make millions in the big leagues, and I've seen some of the yeah. nicest dudes ever line out five times in a row and and get released <laughs> because of it. Right. Get home runs robbed right. because you know and just just horrible things. Um, right. But but the yips the yips phenomena. I mean, honestly, in my experience, that was always like a almost keep your distance thing. Now you got to understand, right. as a catcher, I was tasked I was tasked with. Um, nurturing or healing some of these pitchers, you know, and what was interesting is when you were talking about, you know, the release point, um, you were right and you were wrong in that you just went too deep. The bottom line is all of a sudden you're thinking about doing something that you've done 10 million times in your life to get to that point. That's why you have the yips because you're thinking, right. You know what I mean? Right. Anybody that's at a at an elite level in anything, you know, they've already got to the point where the basic process is such as throwing it. It's almost an automated process. Your body does right. it without even thinking. It's like breathing. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I, I don't know the answer as to why that happens or what, why it leads to that level, but the crux of the situation is all of a sudden you're thinking and you were doing something that you never had to think to do. Sure. Hey, what, what you got, what you got on walkout songs, bruh? I know that was always an important, okay. uh, important, important topic for you. Before I came to Charlie's house tonight, we're sitting right now. I'm sitting on Charlie's balcony on the east side of San Francisco. Um, and he's sitting inside uh, his house about five feet away from me behind a closed door because there was feedback earlier. But um, before I came here tonight, I was out and about in the city and I heard and the, the establishment I was at played my walkout sound song from college, which is an old rap song. It's called like, Whoa, by black Rob. Um, it's not, it's not at all relevant anymore. And so hearing that flooded me with like, a, a, like a myriad of emotions. I was, I was flooded with adrenaline. I was flooded with nostalgia. Those are probably the two strongest. Um, but when those mix inside you, like, that is probably the strongest romantic feeling you can have. I, I think, especially as an ex baseball player. And so it reminded me tonight how much like, a walkout song. I mean, this is, I mean, we're not talking about just, you know, old giants players. Now we're, we're not talking about like kind of clichésisms of baseball. We're talking about like kind of actually being a baseball player and what it's like to, to be a baseball player, having a walkout song and your walkout song is one of the most underestimated values and necessities of being a baseball player once you get to you know college or high school or, or well, <laughs> not high Emil, school. Emil, let me let me let me draw that out league. a little bit. Hey, you, you're sitting on the bench, okay? You're in a professional baseball game. You have done nothing that mattered the entire day. And all of a sudden it's nine fifty six PM. It's the eighth inning. Your manager talks you, taps you on the shoulder and he says, Hey cut, you're up. When you walk to that play, right. and there may be two, there may be five, there may be ten, there may be more thousand people, you need to be confident. You need something mm -hmm. that, in that song, that will immediately pump that blood through your veins, immediately put you in that zone, because nothing else you did that day matters except for the next 30 seconds. So that's the power of a walkout song. What makes you feel cool? What makes you feel confident? 
what makes you feel ready, even if it's fake, because sometimes you got to fake it till you make it. But I, I personally had always in my eight years placed a tremendous amount of value on a walkout song. I had a different one every single year. I spent hours like feeling them out, testing them out, asking friends, asking family what the right choice was. And my seasons never kickstarted till I got the right one. And sometimes it took right. a month into the season to find it. But when that moment hit, and I, I'll never forget, there was a time I was in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I was the only guy on the field. It was during batting practice, about four hours before the game. And the, the, the sound system's just playing whatever's on the radio in Chattanooga. And all of a sudden, this song comes on, and it just kind of made me stand up straight. You know when you just love that first listen? And it was fancy. It was fancy of all things by Iggy Azalea. Uh, yeah. Oh, which yeah. Which is yeah, not yeah. a macho song at all. No, but that no, song no. It's struck just, me. It's, it's borderline it, emasculating. It, it was. It was. But it, it, it struck me in that moment, and I just it was love at first listen. I was like, this is the one. That night I went uh, three yeah, for I, five. The next game we went back home to Knoxville, Tennessee, where I was playing. I chose that as my walkout song. I got there six hours early. I walked up to the press box. I made sure they played it. I made sure right when they were going to start it, where in the song, that game I went four for four. That put me above 300. I never smelled the 200s again that year, and that was in early May. So I have a question then, because there's like a quote. There's a quote in Bull Durham, which is like, you know, the heralded baseball movie historically. There's a few heralded baseball movies they all have kevin costner but bull durham there's a quote from him that that sort of deals with superstition and this kind of gets in to what we were talking about um with the yips and it gets into what we're talking about with walkout songs where he says something along the lines of if you think you are doing well because you're wearing lingerie then you're doing well because you're wearing lingerie right which is yep. like basically if you have a superstition then it's real if it's working, mm -hmm. then the superstition is real. My question to you is, like that next day, because now you've been separated from the game for a couple of years. You're 30 years old. You have a daughter. You, you know, you're a real-life person. You're not just a baseball player anymore. You have other complexities to your life. If, when, looking back with the separation from the game, was it the walkout song that made you go four for four? Yeah. Yes, it was. Right. I believe it you. really was. I it had something to do you. with that. And because the thing is, is the mojo from that continued on and it continued on all summer. And all the guys on my team were like making fun of me, but they really weren't about how I like strutted up to the plate to that song. They made fun of my batting practice, you know, routine, all that kind of stuff. But the greatest appreciation is imitation. And all of a sudden yeah. guys that look, I was the guy struggling on that team. I was the leper. I was the guy nobody wanted to talk to and it happened right. quick. So mm -hmm. it, it wasn't my first experience with that magic. Um, you know, was it the song? Was it me being confident? Is that the same thing? I don't know, but whatever it was, it certainly worked and it was stark contrast. Yeah. I remember being in, uh, in Altoona, it was like the second time probably I watched you play professional baseball. You were in Altoona, Pennsylvania, playing for the yeah, double. That was the two, two short, two short blow the whistle year. I still know yeah, every walk that song I had every season. I was, I was, I was sitting next to Lindsay, your wife, and now you know the mother of your your child. 
And I remember sitting there next to her and you were coming up and too short blow the whistle came on the speakers and she was, she was literally, she was borderline twerking to herself in the seat. And she was definitely like versing every single lyric to the song. Like she was, it was like her little walk up song too. Like she was getting jacked up too. I remember watching your strut up to the plate. Um, If I remember correctly, it was like, it was kind of a, a battle of a, of a, of an at bat and you ended up with a single or a double kind of like a, a very characteristic Charlie slap oh, yeah. down Top one of the special. lines. Top spin special. Yeah, absolutely. And, but you know, it was beautiful because the sun was setting out there and there was the, there was a little theme park in right field. And after the oh, game, yeah. there was fireworks. But yeah, I do remember specifically the two short blow the whistle. Like people, know people's walkout songs like there could be a whole other podcast dedicated to the walkout songs that people are associated with it is such an underestimated element of professional sports especially baseball it is it is real talk because i hate to draw a a parallel between like war and a sport because it's not relevant but when you're that invested in something it is life or death and you're looking for any edge you can get livelihood depending on it but like your family's watching you know there's no hiding you are out in the open and it's you and nobody else so that's why it's so important basically is that you're voter you're vulnerable yep yeah avoiding embarrassment avoiding failure seeking success kind of the uh the cornerstones of baseball or competitive sports in general um the cornerstones of life there you go We'll probably wrap it up there. Um, and uh, I want to thank the Rare Bird listeners. I'm sure this is not the, the standard podcast you're, you're used to listening to. There was a very literal, literary matter um, addressed here. But I know uh, Rare Bird is based out of L.A., and I do want to just touch real quick before we end this that um, for any of you Los Angeles Angels fans out there, Charlie was a member of the, um, the Los Angeles Angels uh, in 2014 – um, in the triple a and he was hitting 2015 was it in triple a he was hitting 390 for los angeles angels in triple a uh as as recent as two years ago and um you know it didn't quite work out and sometimes baseball doesn't work out for people but in general and the rest he, is history. I, it's true he and i share a, a very common love and nostalgia sort of romance for the game even though the game was stripped away from both of us before we were ready um and so I guess that's probably like the theme of this, this podcast is just loving the game and uh, being fascinated by the nuances of it. And um, Emil, Emil, like let me said. ask, let me interject with a question here. Is anyone ever ready? Sure. <laughs> I don't know if it's baseball and you're in love with the game. Is anyone ever ready? I wasn't. Charlie wasn't. Amen. <laughs>